anniversary today, which is awesome. And uh, Christine is, just deserves a gold medal. And uh, after 18 short years, how many of you know that I've given Christine many opportunities to grow in grace uh, in 18, across 18 years? And, uh, you know, marriage is a really good thing, isn't it? I know a lot of people here are married, but marriage is, marriage is a really good thing, uh, isn't it? And I just don't think, I don't think, no, I know for a fact that I am not who I am uh, without Chrissy being part of my life for those 18 years and more. And I would definitely be much less of a person. So um, give, your, give your husband or wife a high five or a hug or a kiss if they're near you or a good friend if you know. Uh, <laughs> very, very good. Well, um, who's looking forward to next week? It's going to be cool fun, isn't it? And uh, lots going on. And we've printed some flyers, um, and we need to change the, invita- uh, the um, name of these. We keep calling them flyers. We should call them invitations, uh, because we, we're, these are really produced not just so that you would know what's going on and like uh, remember the address and things like that, uh, but also so that you could invite some friends along. And um, I, I reckon it's like this, and this is what I'm trying to develop in my own life. I think I, can always, I should always be able to think of five family members that I could be praying for in the one hand. And I should be able to think of five, five friends who I could be praying for in the other hand. Uh, and, and, and lifting up people before Jesus, because, you know, the reality is, Jono was saying in the prayer meeting as well, that uh, we're not going to Wellington High School just because we can, although we can, which is awesome, but it's because there's more seats is the, is the number one reason. There's more seats, there's more space that we can invite more people into a, a place where they can be blessed, uh, where they can connect with Jesus. Isn't that right? Uh, say amen if you believe it. Amen. That'd be good. So there's invitations for that next week. And uh, just a quick trick to notice for the night service. It's, it's on at 5 p.m. next week. We are, normally our night service is 6 p.m. But when it's Equippers 1, it's always at 5 p.m. And that's because uh, Lower Hut do their service at 5 p.m. We do ours at 6 p.m., which allows us to share um, speakers across both locations, which has been really awesome. And um, so that'd be good. Uh, we just want to acknowledge uh, Jono and Emma. Uh, they went in church last week. They've had a, a big loss as a family. And, um, and uh, we just want to acknowledge you, Jono. And as a church family, uh, you know, I hope you're you know, aware, but we've been praying. And uh, we just really believe that God's going to do something good in the middle of it for you and for your family. Amen? Yeah, very good. Um, and so Jono wasn't here last week, so he didn't preach. And we had the amazing Pastor Boon Tan. How many people were here for the morning? It's very cool. It's, it's awesome. I was in um, Thames uh, in uh, the Coromandel. It was a tough time. Me and Harris were up there. It was a really difficult place to live, uh, to visit Thames. I don't know how they do it, but uh, we were up there with Pastor Ed and Rebecca Moore. And, uh, you know, it's exciting being in another location with a, it's a church about the same size as ours. And they're right in the middle of, they've, they've been in a bigger venue. They've got a, a building probably a little bit narrower than ours and a little bit longer uh, than ours. That, 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 that's one that they own. Uh, and then they've been using the town hall. And, uh, but the people at the council put like an a information center in the town hall. So there's town hall and they built an information center. Um, and it wasn't until after the information center was built that they realized that the music from church that was just through the doors from the information center was having a relatively negative impact on the ability of the people to get their bus bookings organized and things like that. Uh, but they've just organized to go back into that venue, uh, which is going to be cool in October. Uh, but, you know, um, I think Thames is a town of 5,000 people, something like that, 5,000 people in the town itself, uh, and, uh, and Ed and Rebecca are leading a church of just over 250 people uh, in that town, which is pretty amazing. The, the, the high school is 600 students, uh, and when they did the uh, Revolution Tour two weeks ago, they had 450 uh, in the town hall, which is a pretty cool, a pretty cool result, isn't it? If there's there's a town with 600 teenagers in it, uh, and you can get 450 of them in one place, which is pretty cool, isn't it? And I think well, would we, that would be awesome in Wellington, wouldn't it? To have you know 80% of the teenagers all in one place to hear the gospel uh, would be something to be part of. Amen. 
Very good. Well, if you've got your Bibles, we're going to be looking in them, so dig them out. Um, and uh, we're continuing our series. In fact, we're concluding our series, God's at War. And I want to be really honest, we haven't covered everything we could cover uh, in talking about this idea of the gods in our life. And obviously, many of us are Christians, and we would say that we, we follow God, the one true God, Yahweh, creator of the universe. But often in our life, things happen that reveal that perhaps we're not always making God our number one. Uh, an example of that would be when someone cuts us off in traffic and then we disregard things that Jesus has said about loving others in short moments. And frustrations and difficulties are sometimes some of the things that reveal to us what our real priorities are, uh, don't they? Yeah, very, very good. Well, an interesting habit in 2008, Massive, massive financial meltdown that's got an acronym that goes with it, the GFC, uh, the Global Financial Crisis, a massive financial meltdown. And in the middle of it, a whole lot of crazy things happened. There was massive scandal, uh, particularly in the US. There's a lot of scandal, and actually right across Europe as well, a lot of scandal around corporate banks, stockbrokers, investment brokers, and the way they'd been structuring their deals was, was one of the dynamics within the the global financial crisis, and I don't understand the, the, the nuance of the economics, but I do know one of the contributing factors was a practice that they had in the States of uh, bundling together what's called junk mortgages, right? Uh, which would be, you know, if someone called your house a junk mortgage, it'd be a bit of an offensive thing, but they, what they do is they bundle together a whole lot of really borderline debts, like, you know, so people have got you know, the house isn't worth quite as much as they borrowed in the first place. They'd bundle them all together and so that, to make them look like a really good package, right? They'd bundle it all together and they would sell it off. That's what the corporate banks were doing, right? And, um, and they would do this and then a lot of them got into trouble. There was court cases, people, uh, people, obviously lots of people lost their jobs and all that sort of stuff and there was like repercussions that came from it. But one of the interesting dynamics about it and one of the real controversies about it was that the Wall Street bankers, the investment bankers in, in London, uh, these people, they were adamant, like adamant that they had done nothing wrong. In many cases, they hadn't actually broken the law. But they had all these practices that drove profits right through the roof and were sort of borderline. What they did do, what understood that they did do, is they undermined the financial system of the whole world. Right? Many, many thousands of people lost all of their life savings. People who were retired lost all of their life savings and go into a retirement without the money that they would have had because of these practices. And if you think about it, if you were to sit down with most of those investment bankers, um, and I, I read an article of, of, where they were interviewing a, a woman in, who worked Wall Street, and that was her specialty was these junk mortgages. Um, and, and she was adamant she'd never done anything wrong. Her job was to maximize profit for the shareholders. That was her job. She didn't break the law. She was selling a product. People needed to read about it. She was just doing her job, maximizing profits for the shareholders, and she was maximizing personal return to other investors, and she was maximizing her own salary and position. Now, anyone who, anyone who can make a convincing case that undermining the economic system of the world that deprives elderly people of their life savings... How many people know that there's, two th there's more than one thing going on? There's a clash going on. You've got values clashing. You've got idols clashing. Now, this woman who's being interviewed is a Christian who loves Jesus. But what she's succumbed to is that she's succumbed to what, we, what you could describe as a cultural idol. So there's this dynamism, this dynamic of profit first Profits the focus, profits the goal, and, and you only realize that it's become more than a goal and it's become something to serve when we see what we're sacrificing for it. Right? And the reality is, we can identify sometimes in our own hearts the personal gods we might have personal safety, so, uh, uh, secure, personal security. We might elevate some of those things ahead of other things and we can identify those. But it's worth noting as well that these idols can operate culturally right across, right across a group of people, right across a society. Or in the case of the global financial crisis, there was a cultural dynamic that affected all of the Western world, which meant that when the dominoes started to fall, there was nothing to stop them. Interesting thought. Um, the, um, if, if you do a, um, 
there's people do, who do analysis of uh, culture, a Christian sort of, uh, sort of uh, I guess they're like sociologists or um, you know, human geographers. They'll look at uh, shifts in belief and thinking. And if you start from the, the, the Middle Ages and, and the time of the Reformation, we had cultures then uh, in Western Europe I'm talking about. So uh, we, if we focus the conversation, it's a bit shorter. Uh, in, in Western Europe, you've got a, a culture that's focused around a biblical God. So you've got a strong Catholicism, you've got the rising Protestant movements, but there's this central within Western Europe, so uh, you know Germany, France, Britain, Italy, you've got this centralization of culture is around God. The church is, is, is important, the state is, a, is an agency of the church, you've got this focus around God. Uh, and, and then we had a shift really in, in, in our culture, Western culture, at the time of the Enlightenment, there's a shift from God being central, now uh, then rationalism takes over uh, and then what happens in uh, the early 1900s is that the state becomes dominant. Uh, Maybe you don't realise this, but think the idea of a nation like Italy or a nation like Germany or even a nation like France, uh, that didn't exist until the 1900s. They had kingdoms and you would have emperors and you'd have families and villages, but the idea of a nation came out of the Enlightenment where, where the state become a supreme, became a supreme power. And so one of the contributing factors to World War I and World War II was the shift in thinking and enlightenment away from kingdom. We had lots of wars before that and they were mainly about religion within, within Western society, but then they became about, they weren't now fighting in World War I and World War II, we'd stopped fighting about religion, whether we're going to be Catholic or Protestant or Huguenots or uh, Anabaptists, we stopped fighting about that and we started fighting now about whether we were Germans or British or French or Italian and it's a shift and what shifted was who was God, who was predominant. Uh, In the 60s we have just as big a shift, Uh, the values of the Enlightenment really ran out in the 1960s and we realised that rationalism wasn't going to solve the world, uh, solve the issues of humanity and we develop now an actualization of self. Um, So we're going from worshipping God to worshipping nationhood Think about, think about 19, the 1900s, or think about 1940, 1950, think about patriotism. That was a, that's a unique moment in history. Let's wave a flag, send the boys off to war. We don't think like that now. We don't do that. We didn't used to do it either. Right? Soldiers would fight, mercenaries would fight battles, but now we're sending our children to war and the glories of sacrifice for nation. We celebrate in things like Pukiahu Park just up the road, right? That's gone. You're not gonna. There's not gonna be a. There's never gonna be a war memorial for the conflict in Syria that's happening now. And New Zealand soldiers who die in Afghanistan now will not be honoured like we honoured those because the values have shifted. What's important now is what's important for me and for myself. I have to actualize myself in my own experience, right? And so now we've got the excesses of our culture now. We can look at and think, wow, well, uh, the 1950s we had this glory New Zealand, right? God's own. Right? And then we can look at modern life now and say uh, people are, are, are doing drugs and living extreme personal lifestyles in pursuit of happiness and self-actualization. And we can say, wow, that's really, really bad. But I, I want to say that both are really, really bad. But what we, what we tend to do is we look back traditionally and say, well, the gods we had then were good. But the gods we've got now are not. But either way, the, we, we, the society in New Zealand in the 1950s wasn't really built around God. And society in New Zealand now is not really built around God, but we can see this progression that's interesting. Some people say, some people would say, what we need to do, and John Wesley would have said this, and, 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 and preachers would say this as well, is what we need to do is we need to get back to the values of a, of a strong church, the values of God in the middle of our culture. We need to build, uh, we need a more religious culture, we need a more traditional culture that we need to build back in, Right? A little more religion would be the answer, wouldn't it? Some people are shaking their head. Isaac's nodding his head, but it was a trick question, Isaac. The answer is no. He may have known it was a trick question, but it was just playing along. No. Uh, Anyway. Um, um, See, an idol, an idol is anything that we look to to give us things or to do things for us or in us that only God can do, right? And, and what happens with religion is, generally speaking, more religion, a more dominant 
church sometimes, depending on what the church's values are. But often what happens is that we, we idolize one of three things within a religious context. And, and uh, maybe, maybe just don't think too much about yourself, and we'll just talk about it in the ab- abstract. Those Christians out there do this. Right? Um, number one is uh, we can idolatrize doctrinal truth. Like the right beliefs. If we all have the right beliefs, all of the problems will go away. Now, you, you people are like, oh, is Jordan preaching that we shouldn't have the right beliefs? No, obviously I'm not preaching that. Having the right beliefs is a good thing. Right? But having the wrong beliefs is not the ultimate problem. The ultimate problem in the world is sin. And the first step to idolatry is to identify a different ultimate problem. If we think the ultimate problem is that people don't think correctly about the Bible and about God, we're missing the point. The ultimate problem is that we all fall short of God's glory and that we need the Savior Jesus to meet that gap and that we need to find in the grace of God the ability to be transformed and begin a new life following Him. You can do all of that with the wrong beliefs. You, you can build a relationship with God without having a correct understanding of the, 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 uh, of the historical implications of Noah's flood. You can have a relationship with Jesus without really being able to describe and ad- adequately describe how grace works. As long as you've experienced grace in your life and you begin this new life with the reality of the Holy Spirit within you, you don't need the right doctrinal beliefs to deal with sin. You just need to repent. When, when Peter preached at Pentecost, he didn't preach Get the right beliefs and be saved. He said, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Right? So sometimes we idolatrize doctrinal beliefs. Sometimes we idolatrize um, or or, or we elevate um, spiritual gifts. And this is more our type of church. We elevate spiritual gifts or ministry success or we elevate like a mystic connection. Right, So because we're babbling in tongues, or sorry, because we're speaking in tongues, I shouldn't talk down about, this is our deal, come on, <laughs> because we're speaking in tongues, we've got a, 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 a this is the, now, now this is the issue, because now again, sin's not the problem now, power, we lack power, so because we lack power, power is the problem, if the church was more powerful, then the world would be transformed, well, the lack of power in the church is not the real problem, the real problem in the church is the same as the real problem in the whole rest of the world, the real problem is, Sin, the only answer to the problem is Jesus. Jesus then is the only God. But if the lack of power is the problem, let's get more power. So the way to break through is to pray and fast for longer, to to speak in tongues for longer. The church I grew up in believed that if you didn't speak in tongues, you wouldn't go to heaven. Right? And and so you have... uh, Spiritual gifts or healing, miracles, words of knowledge, prophecy, these all become elevated. This is what we need. We need to have these miracles happening for the problem to be solved. We need to have all these are the solution to the issue. Well, they're not. These are all what? Really, really good things. But our spiritual gifts are not the same as the fruit of the Holy Spirit, and they're not the same as God himself. They're a different thing altogether, and we need to be careful that we're not elevating our mystic experiences of God, our ministry success, or our spiritual gifts as reality, as, as bigger than they really are. And the last thing is this, that in religious circles, what we can tend to elevate beyond its proper position is the idea of moral living. Again, you're, you're identifying the problem. Sin is the problem, but you've identified the wrong answer. The answer to sin isn't to never do sin. Right? Because the, the issue with sin is this. It's sin. It's sin. Capital S-I-N. No S. Sin is the problem. Moral living only deals with lowercase s-i-n-s. Sins. You can stop lying, but you can't stop being a liar. You're still a liar. The fact that you haven't told a lie doesn't change the fact that your life's a lie, particularly if you make moral living the thing that you're putting all your trust in. Because I live right, Jesus has to save me. <laughs> the, uh, because I live right, Jesus has to save me. Because the problem with that, the problem with that, because I live right, Jesus has to save me, Jesus has to accept me, Jesus listens to my prayer. Now, you, there's all sorts of scriptures you can find that can almost prove that. Right, But you've misunderstood the answer. The problem is sin, 
But the answer is only found in the grace of Jesus Christ to deliver us from sin. And then, then as Jesus works in our life, we begin to live right, but we, begin, we live right as a love and worship response to Jesus. Our living right is the result of what Jesus done, has done. It's not the catalyst for what Jesus does. Are you with me? None of these things are wrong, but the problem is this, that when you idolatrize doctrinal accuracy, all you will have is constant internal struggles. Read the history of the church from the 1500s till now. It's, that's what the whole history of the church is all about doctrinal accuracy. Uh, if we elevate spiritual gifts, mystic experience, ministry success, you have arrogance, big noters, pastor so-and-so, 10,000 people in his church driving around in a limousine. Now, nothing wrong with the limousine, but there's an arrogance that come, come with it that is offensive to the whole world as well as being offensive to Jesus. No one's got a problem with, the, with success, but everyone's got a problem with because I'm successful, I must be something. Right? Now, that's a bit of a problem. Uh, if, if we make moral rectitude or right living our God, it will manifest itself in self-righteousness. And then what happens is then there's an oppression of those who are different, people who don't fit our moral picture. Even if we think our moral picture is the biblical one, people who don't fit it then get treated as the outsided, the unwashed, the desperately unclean, right? And I think if you thought hard enough about your own life, you could recognize little aspects of each of those at work in your own religion. Now, the problem with religion is religion is a powerful cultural force. I know that you would never bundle together junk bonds and sell them and destabilize the economy. I know that you would never elevate these things to go. But come on, within a church setting, these forces are at work. You, you go on the internet and read some Christian blogs. You'll, find, you'll hear these things come through. You'll hear this stuff happening because of the powerful mix of the cultural gods of religion mixing with personal gods of personal either self-preservation or personal advancement build this powerful toxic mix. Here's an example of how a toxic mix of different idolatries work. So a poor young man, you can put this content in any context, a poor young man who feels powerless is very easily swept into a movement for social change that fans racial and religious hatred. Why? Because of the, the dynamic of this cultural ideology and this personal desire for power combined together in a toxic mix that you have normally good people killing people in the street. Why? Because they've been swept away by a toxic mix. Here's one that's a bit closer to home. A young woman who feels unloved by her family, whether she's loved or not, she feels unloved by her family. But she's also raised in a consumer culture of image and glamour, is easily afflicted by an eating disorder. Why? Because you have this cultural God impacting on this, this internal desire to be loved and creates an un irresistible power, right? The, the idols that drive us are both complex, multi-layered, and they're largely, here's the tricky bit, they're largely hidden from us. We needed a wakash on the keyboard there for... Dun, 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 dun. Jonah. When you grab your, book, your Bible, have a look at the book of Jonah. The one, Jonah's probably one of the best books in the Bible. It's a great little story. He's a big fish. All right? It's also four chapters. Some of the chapters are only 10 or 12 verses. So, you know, how many people know that when you read the Bible in the morning, if you can read a whole book, you do feel pretty good. That's because you're elevating spiritual gifts and mystic experiences and you're developing an arrogance because you can read a whole book of the Bible in your devotion time. <laughs> anyway, the book of Jonah, uh, Jonah's, uh, you know, Jonah is one of the cool little, little prophetic books. Uh, and if you've, got it, if you've got your Bible, grab it. Uh, I'm going to read to you from Jonah chapter 1. And we'll just read the first verse. It says this, The Lord gave this message to Jonah, son of Amittai. Verse 2, he says, Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh. And Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, capital city of the Syrian nation. Now, we've already met Nineveh. We've already met the Assyrians in this series uh, with a Syrian captain, right? Uh, go to Nineveh and announce my judgment against it because I have seen how wicked its people are. So the word of the Lord comes to Jonah. Go to Nineveh 
giant capital city, 12,000 people, it's a big city in the olden days, go to Nineveh and announce my judgments against the city. And God says he's seen how wicked people are. Now you've got to understand, point number one, Jonah is a servant of God. This book is not in the Bible by accident. Jonah is a prophet. This isn't his only little interaction. He appears in, in Second Kings as well. He's referenced in Second Kings with some of his prophecies about Israel coming true. So Jonah's an Israelite prophet. Now it's the second, it's the second kingdom. So it's the northern kingdom of Israel separated from Judah, right? So you've got to get your history right. The Israelites were like a, Elijah was a prophet there. Elisha was a prophet there. They always had the, really, Israel had the best prophets, but it was partly because they were the most evil nation. Uh, Judah was less evil. They had less need of prophets, right? But Israel had these powerful prophets. Jonah was one of them. But what Jonah, Jonah was, uh, Jonah's regarded by Hebrew historians and, and theologians as an interesting character. Jonah was a prophet, and we, know, we can see in the story that God speaks to him. But Jonah's regarded by, uh, by Hebrew historians as a bit of a, he was, a, he was a, in with government. See, a prophet was a powerful person in the culture. They could speak to kings. They were, they were present in the court. They spoke into national decisions, right? And Jonah was just a little bit on the inside of the government system. He was one of the king's prophets. And he prophesied prophecies about how great Israel was. He prophesied prophecies about the plan of God to make Israel again into a mighty nation that would defeat all the enemies around. And, and, and one of the prophecies he had to come true was about how Israel would retake lands that it had lost, right? Uh, you could almost describe him as a bit of a, he's a bit of a propaganda prophet in the Israel system. He's a bit of a jingo guy. He's a bit of a build-ups guy. Yeah, you're the king. You're the man. God's on your side. He's that sort of a guy. Now, God speaks to him. But he, God speaks to him. He's a real prophet. The Holy Spirit's with him. And you need to remember this. In Israel, God's the most important thing. God's presence, his power is the most important thing. But different to now, the Holy Spirit now is, descends upon all Christians. Since Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes upon all Christians. right? But in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come on one or two Per generation. So the Holy Spirit would anoint a king to lead or a prophet to speak, right? Or a warrior to rise within a generation. But the, the anointing of the Holy Spirit didn't rest on the nation. And they didn't think of it like that. God didn't rest on that. The presence of God sat in the temple when, they, when, the, when, when he was honored. And then he would anoint different people to act as his agents. That's what we see throughout the story, right? Jonah's one of these guys. He's in with the king. He's anointed by God. He's a servant of God. He's sort of got it going on, right? And then God speaks to him. Go to Nineveh, enemy nation. Go to the enemy and declare my judgments. Now, you would think if you're the Jingo prophet from Israel, that's the, that's the prophecy you want to deliver. Go to Nineveh and tell them they're all about to die because God is going to judge them. Right, But verse 3, this, this story moves along really quickly. The Hebrew people don't allow you to really develop the story much. But it says this, Jonah got up and he went in the opposite direction, away from the Lord. So point number one is Jonah is a servant of God. Point number two is this, Jonah is not serving God. He's a God man. He's doing the opposite, the direct opposite of what God's told him to do. Jonah got up and went in the opposite direction to get away from the Lord. Who's he running away from? He's running away from the Lord. Right? You've got to understand, right through this book, from this moment on, Jonah stops making any sense. He's running away from the Lord, right? He gets on a boat and he's going to go to Tarshish, which they reckon was the western coast of Spain. Uh, and he buys a ticket from a sailor, gets on board, hoping to escape from the Lord by sailing all the way to Tarshish, right? Uh, it's a relatively flawed plan. Now, is the question we've got to ask ourselves, isn't Jonah a prophet? Is he one of God's followers? Isn't he one of God's followers? You know, in our modern context, I thought he was a Christian, right? This is who he's supposed to be, right? In, see, in Equipers Kids, we tell the story like this. If you were in Sunday school, when you heard the story first, it would have been taught to you like this. Jonah was told to go to Nineveh, but Jonah was really, why? He's really scared. Why? Because the Ninevites are evil, right? And it's real. Jonah would have been scared. They were ruthlessly violent with their conquered enemies. 
They were ruthless. It's, it's depicted in VeggieTales as they used to slap people with fish. That's how violent they were. In reality, they were far more violent than that. But VeggieTales, they've got to do it the kid's way, right? So he was so scared, he ran away, he gets thrown into a fish, he realises that he can do all things through Christ's strength in him, the fish spits him out, and he wins the day by preaching to the city, right? He overcomes his fear, right? And then the Sunday school teacher will say, you know, even when it's scary, you've got to do the right thing. So who it was who, taught, who ate the crayons needs to come and talk to me afterwards, even though you're scared, right? Or else you'll get eaten by a giant fish on the way home. Now, the process that's happening in Jonah's heart is a little more complex than how we teach in Sunday school, right? And we don't teach it in Sunday school complex because the kids just want to get onto the colouring, right? Jonah was political. He was under the sway of a nationalistic spirit. He's an Israelite nationalist, right? Why would he want to go and preach a warning to his own oppressors? Because Jonah also knows God. The people he hates are the Assyrians. He hates them because he's spiritually superior. He's morally superior. He's nationalistically superior. Israel's the chosen nation of God. These are evil infidels who are ruling over Israel. Why would he go and want to preach that God's going to destroy you? Because he knows this about God. God's warning them. The only reason God is warning them because God is a God who's infinitely gracious. And if God's not going to warn them if there's not also the possibility that God would release. Jonah is running away so that God doesn't relent so that his enemies would be destroyed. Why is he doing that? Because he's not a follower of God? No, he is a follower of God. But there's idols at work in his heart that he probably doesn't know about. Uh, Okay, and that's what's going on, right? He's spiritual, and his spiritual knowledge of God means he knows that if he can avoid warning them, then God doesn't get the opportunity to relent. Right? It's a clash between some hidden idols, right? So Jonah gets on the boat. Now, again, you got to understand, when these things are at work and you'll, fight, you'll hear yourself do this, you'll do things that make no sense, you'll say things that are completely illogical, you'll, dis- you'll disagree with your own understandings, you'll say things that are bizarre, right? Like Jonah, I'm going to run away from God. Right? He, it just clashes with what he already knows, who God, his, everything he knows about God. He's going to do something impossible. I'm going to run away from God, right? He gets on the boat. He's asleep in the bottom of the boat. In the middle of the storm. God sends this massive storm. In the middle of the storm, Jonah is asleep in the bottom of the boat. Why is he asleep in the bottom of the boat? Because he doesn't want to think about what's going on. Like many Christians, when things are out of order, we fall asleep at the wheel of our life. Not because we're really asleep. We're just pretending to be asleep. We're going to crash unless we turn the corner. We're going to crash unless we respond right. We're going to crash unless I acknowledge I'm driving in the wrong direction. We're going to crash unless I repent. We're going to crash. Jonah's like, I'm, 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 this storm's going to kill us all, right? <laughs> Captain comes down to wake Jonah up and says, come on, pray to your God. This is what he says. Pray to your God. Maybe he'll hear us and he'll save us. There's no, re- there's, no re- there's no record of Jonah praying at that point. Pray to your God. Jonah's like, I'm not, I'm not talking to him. If I start praying, he'll know where I am. <laughs> I think God's found you already, Jonah. <laughs> right? You know, there's a stubbornness in human hearts that knows literally no bounds. Think about some of your worst moments. Usually it's you being stubbornly wrong. You know you're wrong. Everyone else in the situation knows that you are wrong. If, when your friend or your mum writes a letter to the editor or the listener, everyone who reads the listener knows that you're wrong, right? But there's no way out. There's no way out. There's nothing we can do about it. Have you heard people say that? Like relational conflict. Nothing we can do about it. That's right, there's nothing you could do about it without apologising. There'll be nothing you could do. There's nothing you could do about it. Not, apart from forgiving, there was nothing you could do. We paint ourselves into a corner, and then we pretend that life's really bad. I'm stuck here. There's nothing I can do. We paint, we'll paint ourselves into a financial pickle. Nothing we can do. No, actually, there's nothing you could do apart from asking for help. Without asking for help, you will stay in the corner. 
But to ask for help is to slay an idol. Why is it so hard to forgive? Not because we don't understand God's forgiveness of us, but to forgive is to slay the idol of our own hurts. How dare they do that? They've offended against what's wrong. It's in the Bible. They shouldn't have done it. But you're not, when you're unforgiving, you're not worried about the fact that they've offended God. You're worried about the fact that they've offended you, the actual God of your universe. They've knocked you off your perch. There you were, resplendent in your own little temple. And they've offended against this image you have of yourself. Right? Jonah's in the same position. The, the, the heathen sailors are like, pray to your God. And he's like, nothing I can do about it. The boat's going down. They cast lots. They find out that Jonah's the problem. These are, these are, these are either Greek or Roman ideas of gods that they've got. So to, then Jonah comes up with the only solution. The only solution. You've got to throw me overboard. We do, I reckon we do this all the time. We'd rather, we'd rather be thrown overboard than deal with our junk. Just, throw, just no, fine, I'm, I'm not coming to Christmas anyway. Just throw me overboard. Well, I'm just never going to talk to them again. We'd rather see the relationship die than deal with the thing that's causing tension. Just, wow, can't do it. We do this is how church works. If I offend you enough, you, you, you'll just leave. Well, throw me overboard. And you'll be like, they just wouldn't listen to me. No, we wouldn't listen. We can't listen to people who aren't saying anything. Right? If it's a big enough church, if it's a big enough church, you just find a corner where you can sit in. This is a small enough church that I can annoy you from. You're close enough, I can annoy you all. Right? But if God's using the, the, the if God uses anything, he uses Christian community to, to bring these things to the light. Right? Jonah gets <laughs> thrown overboard. You can see this in marriages. Oh, there was no way out. Oh, we tried to, we tried to make it work, and I'm not wanting to be judgmental, right? But sometimes we say we tried to make it work, but we, sometimes I know in myself, I know exactly what I've done wrong. I know exactly what I need to say to put it right. But I also acutely know how much it's going to cost my gods. To do that, I need to displace something in my own heart that I hold dear. My own sense of injustice. Well, you said this first. I was only reacting to the fact that you parked the car on a strange angle anyway. Right? <laughs> Jonah had no other options than be thrown overboard. He had no other options except repenting and doing what God had asked him to do. He could have said, I'll pay you whatever you want. For this storm to stop, we've got to turn the boat around and head back to land. He didn't say that. He's throwing me overboard. Jonah would rather die than repent. Same with you. Hey. Same with Not so much, not so much. Anyway. So Jonah has a moment, right? So Jonah... It's all he could do was get thrown overboard. Then he, and then he has this moment, right? Do you know, um, he gets thrown overboard and God sends a fish. Isn't that, it's crazy. There's stories of, a, um, there's actually stories in the 1900s, of a, a late 1800s, 19th century, of a fisherman fell overboard, got swallowed by a whale. And the whale then got caught and he was still alive. Uh, although we really, he didn't, he didn't live for very long afterwards, but he'd been somewhat digested. But anyway, that's, that's actually not in my notes. <laughs> I just remembered it now. But uh, <laughs> Jonah gets swallowed by a whale, big fish, <gasps> sucks him in, and he's there in the belly of the whale. Uh, and the story is he's there for three days and three nights. Whether he's there for three days or three nights is not that important historically. It's very important theologically. Uh, it's really important to pray out loud. Especially if you're in the belly of a whale. If you've been swallowed by a whale, swallowed by a financial circumstance, swallowed by a relational conflict, uh, swallowed by your own stubbornness, swallowed by your own sin, and you're in the belly of a whale. How do you know if you're in the belly of a whale? It, 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 um, it, um, it's dark. You can't really see your way through the problem. It's moving for you. You don't know. You're not, in, you're not swimming. 
You're traveling a distance, you're going where the whale wants you to go, it's grabbed you, right? You know when you're in the belly of a whale because it's dark, you're not in control of where you're going. And number three, it's very, very smelly, right? When you're being swallowed by a whale, that's when you need to pray. You need to pray out loud or you need to write your prayers down. But praying out loud, because what you'll do is you'll do what Jonah did. In Jonah 2, he's praying in the belly of the whale. And I just love verse, <laughs> verse 4 of this. It's just, I think this is just awesome. This is me on my bad days. Verse 4, if we could throw just verse 4 out. Look at what Jonah says in the middle of his prayer. I'm glad he wrote this down. Because uh, he could read it back later. Then I said, Oh Lord, you have driven me far from your presence. <laughs> Yet I will look more once more to your temple. Now you've got to write your prayers down so you can catch yourself saying the most stupid thing. In what way has God driven Jonah from his presence? Jonah, go to Nineveh. Jonah goes to Tarshish. Who's driving who? Who's Jonah specifically tells the sailors, I'm running away from God. Then he's in the whale. God, you drove me from your presence. Well, the reality is we say that all the time. God's so far away. Of course he's far away. You've been running as hard as you can away from him. God's gracious enough to let Jonah carry on. And Jonah, in his prayer, he processes all his troubles and his woes and the stormy waves. And you drove me from your presence. I sank beneath the waves and the waters closed over me. Seaweed wrapped itself around my head. I doubt that happened. He's just, he's just imagining that. Seaweed wraps itself around his head, sank to the very roots of the mountains. Right? But he has this moment of, he has this moment of personal revelation. In verse 8 and 9, Jonah gets to the real issue. Look at what Jonah says in verse 8. He looks to the holy temple, so he's looking towards God in his earnest prayer. Earnest prayer goes out to you. As my life was slipping away, my earnest prayers goes out to you. And this is what he prays. Those who worship false gods turn their backs on all of God's mercies. Is he talking about the false gods of the Ninevites, or is he really coming to the reality of that he's been worshipping a political God, a religious God. He's been worshipping his, his position in Israel is what's going to save him. His position in Israel is what's going to further the plan of God. He realizes in the belly of the whale, his position in Israel is no longer important. And he's trusted in a worthless idol. The fact that the king knows him can't help him in the belly of the whale. The king's like, there's a, I've got a sense there's a whale somewhere we need to find. In the ancient world, really, truly, they fully understood anything below the surface of the water was just one step from hell. It was the underworld. It was the murky depths. He's realizing here that once once you've been swallowed by a whale, it's the same if you get swallowed by a whale. Once you're swallowed by a whale, the first thing you've got to realize is that your, your, your lowercase g gods can't help you anymore. In verse 9... He goes on and he says, I'll offer my sacrifices to you with songs of praise and I will fulfill my vows. What was his vows? I guess he made vows to be a prophet and to do what God said and to deliver the word of God. He's repenting. Why is he repenting? Because he comes to this realization. For salvation comes from the Lord alone. It doesn't come from his political influence. It doesn't come from his position in society. It doesn't come from anything else. In Equipus Church, we understand salvation comes from the Lord alone. We, salvation doesn't come from marketing. It doesn't come from a powerful church. Salvation doesn't come from filling up a building. Salvation doesn't come from advertising. Salvation doesn't come from uh, getting lots of people's hands in the air. Salvation comes from the Lord. It's God himself at work amongst us as a community. It's him who transforms us. Good preaching doesn't bring salvation. Good music doesn't bring salvation. Great Great worship doesn't bring salvation. It's from the Lord alone. We want to worship. It's a good thing to worship. It's a good thing to preach well. It's a bad thing to preach badly. We want to do everything we can good, but we're not trusting in these things to save us. We're not trusting in our right doctrine. 
We're not trusting in our spiritual connections. We're not trusting in what we can do for the council in Wellington City. We're not trusting in, hey, let's build a big crowd and big, big influence. Because we all know what it's like in the belly of the whale. And none of those things helped us then. It's when we finally repented, when we finally came to Jesus Himself, and we got away from understanding repentance to doing repentance. We got away from understanding God's grace in our mindsets or in our, our school, Christian schooling or our, our Sunday schooling. And we embraced God's grace, believed in God's grace, trusted God's grace to save us. It's a powerful moment. But I'm going, to take t- I'm going to take 10 more minutes because something hilarious happened. You reckon you can handle 10 minutes? Brilliant. If you repeat the progression too often, we'll call, it out. We'll call you out. <laughs> Jonah repents. The whale, the whale was, I don't know, probably already going in the right direction because God, you know, he knows that Jonah's going to repent. You know, God, you know, anyway, let's not get to that. If the, the whale comes up, spits Jonah up onto the beach, that would be an awesome scene in any movie, right? That would be awesome, right? He spits Jonah up onto the beach, you know. Jonah goes to Nineveh and preaches. It's a city of 12,000. For a bunch of days, he just walks around the street saying this, repent, God's going to destroy the city. God's going to destroy the city. God's going to destroy the city. And then his preaching gets heard by people. They begin to respond. And then from the king down, they all repent. A whole city repents. It's the most inglorious success in Christian ministry. 12,000 people. This is the king of Assyria. We know this is the most powerful empire at the time. The whole city repents and then they all fast. Jonah says, well, they say, what are we going to do? And Jonah's like hoping that, that nothing they can do, right? But he says, you've got to all fast. And so they all fast, the whole city from the king. And then they make all the animals fast. <laughs> Can you imagine it? Trying to make your cat fast. They're all fast, right? <laughs> they all they all fast, and God relents. God does what Jonah had suspected He would do all along. Jonah leaves the city. He says, "I knew it." He storms out of the city. I knew it. Have a look at chapter 4, verse 2 and 3. He complains to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I even left home that you wouldn't do this? You do this, Lord. That is why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you were a merciful God. That's why I ran away because I knew you were merciful. I knew you were a compassionate God, slow to get angry, filled with unfailing love, and eager to turn back from destroying people. I knew you I knew you wouldn't destroy them. That's why I didn't want to tell them. Because I was, why? Because I was wanting them dead. This guy's crazy. God asks back, is it right for you to be angry about this? I know this God's not upset by anger, but he's, he's, he's amazed at what Jonah's angry about. Jonah, run away from Tarshish, belly of the whale. Jo- the belly of the whale guy, he's upset that God's a forgiving God. The guy who prayed the prayer in ver- chapter 2 is the same guy who's ranting to God in chapter 4. Why? Because what happened in the belly of the whale wasn't finished here. He, got a realize- he has a realisation But then the circumstances play out and we realise that Jonah knew something without yet displacing the idol. Why does God love to use circumstances? Because we all know everything up here. If it was all about up here, there'd be no problems. But the issues are in here. And if there's one thing we can learn, it's got to be this. The idols of our heart uh, take longer to shift than we think. And they are harder to shift than we think. 
Well, if I was swallowed by a whale for three days and three nights in the dark and the smelly fish, and God spoke to me in the belly of the whale and then delivered me miraculously from my evil circumstances, circumstances of my own making, then I would understand, would you? Hasn't He already done this for us? But don't we find ourselves still angry at God about the things that God does when the circumstances change around us? You know, at the end, there's an interesting rhetorical question, a rhetorical question that ends the whole book. My favorite bit, though, is the bit where Jonah's up on the. Jonah's watching the city and it's hot, and God grows a plant over Jonah. Jonah. Jonah's watching the city, just hoping God will come through with the fire and the brimstone. God grows this plant to to shade Jonah from the east wind, to this hot wind off the desert, to shade him from the sun. And Jonah begins to cool down. It's like, you know, a bit of time out there for Jonah. He begins to cool down. And then just as he's cooled down again, God sends a worm. (laughs) The worm eats the plant. The plant dies. And Jonah says this, I'd rather die than live like this. Says the man rescued from the belly of the whale by divine indigestion, right? What in... I went back to that bit because I needed to get that line in. No, no, no. We've got, we've got to get this. See, what we can do is what we do, what, this is what we do as Christians. God begins to stir some stuff, right? We have revelations and insights. Things begin to make us frustrated or they make us angry. We get angry about the wrong things. God's asking what's going on. And, and we, we just... And we, call, we manage to cool ourselves down because we've learned to manage our emotions. We've learned to deal with these things, right? We cool down, right? But all it takes is for a worm to eat a plant and we are suicidal. Or we're relationally suicidal. Or we're spiritually suicidal. Or we begin to self-harm emotionally or spiritually. How do you self-harm? Stop reading your Bible. What are you hunger-striking God? Stop praying. You're giving God the cold shoulder. Just the same as you would any other friend you were disgruntled with. And all it takes is for the worm to eat the, this thing that this, what, this, a little bit of comfort gets removed. And boom, I'd rather die. We're going to have to leave the church. We're never talking to them again. We're not going to Christmas. Why? We, we, because there's something, you, it's, it's affecting you deep down in your heart. God's wanting to stir something up. Here's the interesting rhetorical question at the end. God says to Jonah, come on, you're really, really angry now about a plant that died. And he says, shouldn't I also feel sorry for such a great city? You feel angry about, you feel sorry for a plant dying. But you didn't give a stuff about 12,000 people, women, men, women, and children dying. And God says, shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? Jonah doesn't feel sorry. He wants to see it burn. But God's pointing out something. See, the next time you see a man asleep in a boat in the middle of a storm, it's the same man who said that the only way to the Father is through him. And the only thing he would do to prove he was the son of God is that he would show them the sign of Jonah. What's the sign of Jonah? It's this, that God would care for a great city like Nineveh. Jesus, this man asleep in the boat, he doesn't say, well, throw me overboard. He's secure in the plan of God. He knows that he's on a path that God's called him to. He knows he, he is God himself come to bring the grace, the mercy, the love of God to the cities, the villages, the towns of the world. God himself went to Nineveh because Jonah won't go. Jonah still doesn't go to Nineveh. We still don't reach out. We still don't move out. There's still nothing. The people of God are not the answer. God Himself is the answer. 
The problem with the people of God, and it's always been the problem with Israel, it's the problem with the church today, is that as much as we'd like to be the solution, we are still part of the problem. It's Jesus himself comes to Wellington. Jesus comes to our city. Shouldn't he feel sorry for a great city? I think Jesus feels sorry for Wellington. That's why we all got spat up on the beach here. Isn't it how that's how you got here, Karen? Wellington, here I am, Wellington. That's how that's how you get anywhere in God. Oh no, I've got a job offer. You know, oh no, no, the circumstances of your life swallowed you. And in the darkness, misery, and the smelly fishness of it, you thought, well, I'm going to study in Victoria because that's a really good idea. No, that's not. It's just where God wanted you. Why? So that you could walk around the city and in the way God's called you, reveal the love of God, reveal the presence of God, reveal the goodness of God. Why don't you bow your head, close your eyes. We're going to pray just before we close the service. God, we thank you that you're here. We thank you for this wonderful story. Lord, we thank you for Jonah and the the fact that he was brave enough to write this book about his own little journey. Right now, if you're here and you've never made a decision to respond to Jesus, I'd love you to do that this morning. Perhaps you could even identify with Jonah running away from God. Maybe you've you've known God in the past, but you really... If you were to be honest with me and if you were to be honest with yourself, you'd have to say that right now you're running away from God. And maybe the storms of your life are a a mere circumstance or perhaps the storms of your life are an opportunity for you to acknowledge the space that you're in is partly your own making because you've distanced yourself from a God who loves you immensely, who's called you to purpose and called you with a plan. If you're here and you don't know Jesus, He's not a part of your world. One of the things we believe is that it's only in trusting in Jesus that we find salvation. That's what Jonah realized in the belly of the whale. It's only God. It's only through Jesus that we find salvation. Our life comes back together. The purposes of life become revealed. Our eternal destiny is only ever secured in our relationship with Jesus. We believe it firmly as a church that when we acknowledge Jesus as our Savior, we ask Him for forgiveness, we repent, then we're saved. God begins to work in our world. Our eternal destiny is secured in heaven. And our immediate plan, our immediate purpose begins to be revealed as God Himself works in our world. If you're here and you're distant from God, just before we close, I want to lead you in a prayer where you can recommit and rededicate your life to following Jesus. So wherever you're sitting and wherever you're at in your life, if that's you tonight, this morning, and you know you need to commit your life to Jesus for the first time, or you need to rededicate your life to Him. Just while everyone else has their heads bowed and their eyes closed, why don't you shoot your hand up and give me a wave? Once I've seen your hand, you can put it back down. And then once people have had a chance to pray, uh, to respond, then we're going to pray. If that's you, shoot your hand up. Once I've seen it, you can put it back down. Thanks over on my right. Is there anybody else? Why don't you shoot your hand up and, and then we'll begin to pray. If that's you, just respond, lift your hand. It's just so that I know who's praying this prayer today and we can be part of the journey, that journey with you. Awesome. Could we stand together, church, and pray? I'm excited that one person is responding. And, you know, if you were too scared to put your hand up, there's nothing stopping you from praying this prayer and committing your life to following Jesus. Let's pray when you close your eyes, and I'll pray a line of a prayer, then we'll all pray it together. We'll get to the end, uh, and then we'll say amen. Here we go. Uh, Dear God, I thank you that you love me enough to send your son to die in my place. Today I choose to acknowledge you, Jesus as my Lord I make you my King and I choose to follow you I acknowledge you as my Saviour I ask you to forgive my sin in Jesus name I pray Amen Amen do you know this book Jonah of Jonah it just ends with this crazy question it just says that God just says Shouldn't I also feel sorry for this great city? And uh, in Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods, he's a great writer. He just says, God sends that rhetorical question at Jonah like an arrow at his heart. But at just the last minute while we're watching, Jonah jumps out of the way and the arrow comes flying off the pages at us. 
I don't know if you can recognize in your own world where perhaps you're holding back in some way from things that you know God's called you to. And perhaps even your religion gets in the way of your obedience to God. You're not the first person, you're just the same as every other person. This thing, religion designed to facilitate our connection with God, gets in the way when we elevate things into the place of God. Religion just facilitates a connection with God. And it's God who does the dif- makes the difference in our world. Amen. Why don't you lift your hands, close your eyes. I'm just going to ask the Holy Spirit, why don't, you be, why don't you speak to us, God? Is there something you can acknowledge? I know I've, it's pretty broad this morning because all of us are from different spaces. But I think sometimes we, 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 we prioritize our own safety above the call of God. We prioritize our, our own social standing above the call of God. We trust in churchiness to replace actual relationship with Jesus. Holy Spirit, would you speak to us? Lord, we thank you. It's your desire to have a real and dynamic relationship with any, every one of your children. And Lord, I pray, Lord, right across our church, and I pray that we'd have individually the courage to agree. Lord, that you'd prompt us, provoke us, and identify in our hearts the barriers we have to respond to you, the barriers that we have in relating with you, the things that are holding us back from relationship with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Awesome. Very good. Give someone a high five.